Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, if you don't know, now you know, Felony Friday is the show that focuses on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. And guys, it has been one heck of a week, and I'm not going to lie to you, I'm recording this on a Thursday night right before this publishes on Friday morning. And I'm worn down, man. It's been a long week, but it's been a fun week. On Tuesday night, I was out way, way later than I normally am. I was out with Drew Miller. A lot of you guys who are from Pennsylvania know who Drew Miller is, but probably you guys out there all across the U.S. and maybe the world know about Drew Miller. There's a big uh, special election in Congressional District 18, PA 18, and Drew Miller was running as the Libertarian candidate. So, I went to his election watch party down on the south side of Pittsburgh, and I, it was a great time. I had a lot of fun. Some great conversations with libertarians. It was great. It was fun, and you know when it got real close to the end between the Democrat and Republican, and it got to the point where the Drew's amount of votes was about double the uh, difference between the two candidates. So they put Drew's picture up on the uh, up on the screen, and everyone was going nuts. And he was getting calls from news stations, and one station came and interviewed him. So it was cool. It was cool. I'm excited for the future of liberty, the future of liberty in Pennsylvania and throughout this land. You know, it's a small thing getting. He got a I don't know, maybe like 1,400 votes, something like that, out of over 200,000. That might seem like nothing, but you got to remember that he wasn't allowed in any debates. And most people had no idea that he was even running in the election. So I think it's a win. And him making it on television and uh, causing that stir and pissing off both sides, the Dems and Republicans, it really makes people aware that there's a third party. Libertarians are are in this race to stay. So I could talk about that more in another episode, maybe an LALDL, give you more stories about that night. But anyway, if you want to hear more from Drew, he was a guest on Mark Clare's show. Episode 335, you can find that at lionsofliberty.com slash 335. And of course, Mark Clare's show is every Monday. Brian McWilliams' show is every Wednesday. Brian's show is called Electric Liberty Land. Check them both out, guys. We have three different shows. This is a bit of a variety show that we do here. If you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And you know what? I did say last week that I don't like the, the Apple, the Apple podcast anymore. And a lot, of, a lot of people reached out to me and told me what to use. I haven't switched yet. I got to compare them all together. I haven't done that yet. And I'll, I'll pick, pick the best one. Once I do, I'll let you guys know what I'm using. But uh, yeah, subscribe. Whatever you use for your podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get each and every one of these episodes delivered to your phone first thing in the morning. So this episode of Felony Friday is the 115th episode. That means you'll be able to find links and notes on the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com FF115. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about addiction, and it's a little bit different view of addiction, and probably some people are going to be pissed off because 
There is a very uh, ingrained way to look at addiction. And, you know, I'm not going to say one way is right, one way is wrong, but we should be talking about any way that somebody can, uh, you know, get help and get better and, you know, not ruin their life, uh, not flush their life down the drain. I think we should be open to looking up the way they did that. So I will listen to anybody on how they solve their addiction problems. With that, guys, one more thing and then we'll get started. I want to tell you about the sponsor for today's show. Of course, today's show is sponsored by Dan Wise and his team of prison consultants. And if you're facing a federal case, if you have a friend, a family member, acquaintance, anyone you know who is facing a federal case, when that happens, it's a crazy situation. You're confronted with all kinds of things. You've got lawyers telling you stuff. Um, You're hearing all kinds of nightmares about what the prison system's like. What you need is you need somebody who you can talk to, somebody who's going to help you calm down and somebody who is going to, um, you know, make you feel better about the whole situation, kind of hold your hand through it. Your lawyer, that's not your lawyer's job. And honestly, really in a federal case, your lawyer most of the time is not going to help you too much because prosecutors have you by the balls. And if they want you to go to prison, there's a good chance you'll go to prison, as you've learned by listening to many episodes of this show. So what does a prison consultant do? A prison consultant What they're going to do is specialize in a variety of different skill sets, and they're going to fight for your freedom. So they're going to help you to qualify for sentence reduction programs, help you to avoid common mistakes that zap your chance of early release, and they're going to keep a handle on that anxiety and stress and uncertainty and everything that's swirling around to help you organize your life and get ready to go into prison. And so when you come out of prison, you're ready to uh, hit the ground running and not miss a beat. So you can find out more about Dan Wise. Dan is known as RDAP Dan on YouTube, has a fantastic YouTube channel. Dan has a lot of great guests on his YouTube channel, people who have you know, had experiences in the criminal justice system and a lot of things to learn from. A lot of people to learn from, a lot of mistakes, but a lot of uh, best practices, a lot of success stories that Dan talks about on his show. So check that out, RDAP Dan on YouTube. You can find the YouTube channel and you can get a free consultation with Dan by going to lionsofliberty.com slash rdap that's lionsofliberty.com slash r-d-a-p my guest today on felony friday is stephen slate stephen became interested in addiction and drug use issues due to his own struggles with drug abuse and he joins me today to talk about a book that he co-authored with two other authors Mark Sheeran, and Michelle Dunbar. It's called The Freedom Model for Addiction, Escape the Treatment and Recovery Gap. And it's a really interesting book. And I first heard about Stephen from his interview on The Tom Woods Show, who I'm sure a lot of my listeners today are very familiar with Tom Woods. And the book calls into question uh, some commonly held beliefs. I say commonly held, pretty much everyone holds these beliefs about addiction. It asks, is addiction a disease? Is treatment the only way to deal with it? Are people who believe that they don't need treatment in denial? And is moderate consumption always off limits to people who have had problems with addiction or with drug abuse? So, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on Felony Friday. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for taking some time to come on the show. As I said, I heard your interview on the Tom Woods Show, and Tom is a uh, a friend of this podcast, and I thought that was a very informative issue. But with this being a show that focuses, you know, more primarily uh, on criminal justice issues, you know, I think we can dive maybe a little bit deeper. I hope than uh, than Tom was able to, and I've you know interviewed some other people, some other experts in the field 
or some other authors in the field of addiction. I don't know if you're familiar with Johan Hari. He's been on this show in the past. He wrote Chasing the Scream, which was mostly about um, the drug war, but talked a lot about addiction, uh, talked a lot about drug use, drug abuse, depression. I forget the name of his recent book, but his recent book dove into that even farther. So there might be some overlap between some of his ideas and, and your ideas. And of course, I've also interviewed felons who've had issues with drug abuse, drug use, and a lot of them more recently actually have been talking about how they've been able to really, how embracing the ideas of liberty, how embracing self-ownership and self-actualization and uh, personal responsibility has been able to help them to deal with uh, issues they've had with drugs in the past. So I'm excited to to dive into these issues with you, Stephen. And I think a good place to start maybe before we get into talking about the book is if you could sort of share your personal story, your personal struggles that you've had with drug abuse, how you got interested in this topic in the first place? Yeah, I started using uh, drugs in my late teens, uh, quickly accused a whole bunch of them. And, um, you know, I, I used often, but I never felt out of control with them uh, for the first three or four years that I used a variety of drugs. Um, and that even included heroin, which I used intermittently for a few years. I, and my use of it at that point, I was snorting it. I was using it nasally. Um, sometimes I would use daily. Sometimes I would use in binges here or there. Sometimes I would just stop for a week, you know, I run out of money, stop for a few weeks. Um, it didn't, you know, immediately become the the type of heroin use that we think of, which is that as, as soon as somebody starts doing it, they're, you know, quote unquote, addicted and they can't stop and they have to have it every day. Um, and I did use it to the point of tolerance and withdrawal, but uh, I did not. I was really beautifully kind of naive to heroin addiction and how addictive it was supposed to be. You know, I had heard that it was supposed to be addictive, but that was along with hearing things like, um, you know, if I smoked pot, I would think I was driving my car 100 miles an hour, but I'd only be driving 10, (laughs) you know, and all those weird things you hear in drug education in school. So um, when I finally smoked pot for the first time and I realized it was nothing like they told me it was going to be like, I pretty much threw out any ideas I got from adults about drugs. And so I was very naive to it. And so when I would go through withdrawal, um, I would just feel sick and go through it. I would not feel compelled to get more drugs. Um, And... uh, I I had a point where some family members did an informal intervention, not the scream in your face type with an interventionist, but uh, sort of surprise, we're here and we want you to go talk to a counselor. We love you. And and I did that. And um, I talked to this counselor. I asked first, um, do, you know are you going to tell my family anything that we talk about here? And he said, no. Um, And I was like, so everything's confidential. He said, yes. So I figured I was going to put it all out there. And I did. And I told him about all my drug use. And part of that was the intermittent heroin use. 
And I had recently had a three month quit um, where I said, huh, am I addicted? Because because there was a friend who everybody was saying was addicted. And again, I didn't necessarily know what that meant, except that you can't stop. And I said, okay, well, let me see if I can stop. And I stopped using heroin for three months. And then I started using it again. And now I had been using it again for a month or two. We have this intervention. I have to go talk to this counselor. And when I'm telling him my story and telling him about all my drug use, he stops me at the part where I said I quit for three months. And he says, no, you didn't. And I'm like, yeah, I did. And just so you know, I'm not trying to present to you that I'm totally stopped. I started using again and I used, started using again because it's the only thing that makes me happy. And, um, and I like it, you know? And so what was the reason why you stopped just to see if you, yeah, because I was spooked by a friend who is apparently stealing from our other friends. Um, I had a lot of friends that used heroin at this time, pretty casually when I lived in Philadelphia Um, there was a lot of hair, there was, and still is a lot of heroin in Philadelphia and, um, in all of Pennsylvania, really, that's, that's my home state. Yeah. I lived, I went to school down there at the time I was going to art school and, um, and yeah, so this guy stops me when I said I had quit for a few months and he says, you no, you, you didn't do that. I was like, yeah, I did. And you know, let's move on. I'm using it again. No, you couldn't have stopped. Nobody can quit heroin on their own blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm like, I did, you know, and this becomes a giant argument with the guy because he can't accept the fact that I'd stopped using on my own for three months. And, uh, you know, so to me, I wasn't addicted because I could stop or start it when I wanted to. Right. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Here's a question. Yeah. Well, that that part does make sense. Um, you said that uh, for heroin, at least the way you were using was you were you were snorting yeah. it. Um, would it be harder to to stop if you had been uh, taking it intravenously? Um, no, not necessarily. It depends. It really just depends on the amount of heroin that's getting into your body, you know. And there was times there I was using a bundle a day, daily, you know, uh, for a week at a time. And when you use that amount, you should go through a draw. And I did, um, you know, so this becomes a massive argument and he finally concedes that I could have quit on my own. But if that was the case, then I was probably just using fake heroin the whole time. <laughs> so this is the point where I storm out of the office and, um, and you know, that was going nowhere. And look, I'm using it because it makes me happy. And, and he had told me, he even pulled out a book to tell me I had a disease. I was in denial right now. That's a symptom of the disease. I'm like, you know, I, I think I'm choosing to do this. So six months later, um, I, I do experience, I get an, an arrest for heroin. I got caught leaving a drug spot and um, tackled to the ground by police without them ever ask, without them asking me anything except they were on like bikes. I didn't even really know who they were. And they yelled out, hey, white boy, what are you doing around here? And then I just was walking and I kept walking along and they ran up behind me and tackled me into the ground and just beating the crap out of me. 
and uh, rip my mouth open, reaching in there to try and find drugs, and they did find them. Um, and ultimately, I, I had a very good lawyer, my cousin, and he... Um, Those cops are just protecting <laughs> Yeah, and they're just protecting me, right? Um, <laughs> this My lawyer, um, he's he put me on the stand and had me testify to exactly what happened, and... <laughs> And the other lawyer, the the prosecutor was like flabbergasted. Uh, and then the judge threw it out because uh, it was an illegal search. I mean, it was a it was a tackle, you know, without ever asking me anything, you know, without even stopping mm-hmm. me. And so I got that thrown out. But the price of that was he said, Steve, you have to go get help. And I went to a uh, an inpatient place in Connecticut. And it was that disease thing the whole time. You know, you have a disease. It was AA stuff the whole time. And it was people telling me, you know, you're not done yet. You know, and they do that to kind of like challenge you, you know, and to scare you. You know, it'd be like 40-year-old guys. I was 21 or 22, whatever. I think it was 21. And uh, yeah. And they were like 40-year-old guys, 50-year-old guys. You're not done yet. You're going to end up just like me. You're going to be shooting up. Everybody shoots up. Nobody just snorts it. You know, and that was the shooting up thing was like a line. I was like, I'm not ever sticking a needle in my arm. Um, I get out of there and inside of a week, I'm shooting up, you know, and also I'm behaving all the other ways that they told me I would behave, which, you know, was as well. Uh, as soon as you feel withdrawal, you can't resist that. It's so horrible. You'll do anything to get more drugs. And, you know, well, that's exactly what I started doing. I did anything to get more drugs. I started. Why Why do you think that was? Why did that change happen? I think it was because I was indoctrinated into that belief system. On for on, That's one part of it, okay? Um, because it literally changes um, your response to drugs as well. There was this guy, Alfred Linsmith, he was a sociologist, and in the 1940s, he did a study of 50 opiate addicts. And to find out, you know, how did they become opiate addicts? And in several of the cases, people were going through opiate withdrawal, and they had gone through it more than once in their lives using, you know, opium, heroin, morphine, different things. And it wasn't until one time they, were, they happened to be going through it, and they just thought themselves as sick when they had gone through it. But then they had a time when they were going through it, and somebody says to them, oh, I know what's up. You're hooked on, on junk. You're a junkie. Whatever it is, it would be a doctor, a well-meaning friend. Yeah, you're hooked. You can't stop. And they start to then think of themselves as a junkie and they go to get more drugs to relieve that pain. And then they say, oh my God, yes, I am addicted and I need this stuff and I can't operate without it. Um, I think part that's partly what happened to me. Um, and, you know, that theory is sort of like what Johan, and Johan, I'm sure, has read uh, Lynn Smith. Uh, because Johan is and Johan has met with some amazing um, 
amazing people. I met with him a couple of years ago and he was telling me about all the researchers he met and it was really cool. Some big people in the field that I'm sure he didn't meet with Lynn Smith because he's been dead for a while. But Johan's a, uh, he's, he's an expert. In yeah. Dropper. Every, yeah. <laughs> every single story he has, he yeah. drops a name. Um, so. no, but I mean, he's met with some amazing people like Howard Becker. This, this guy wrote the definitive tome on, on, on marijuana called becoming a marijuana user. And, you know, he went out to the dude's home and met him. Um, but so Lynn Smith, um, you know, he talked about the fact that like, look, all of these people get out of the hospital hooked on morphine and yet they don't think a thing of it. You know, they just detoxify. They go through, they're as, you know, quote unquote addicted as the junkie on the street. Yet, they just feel like they have the flu. They're just recovering from surgery or whatever it is. They don't seek out more drugs. And that's still true today. Um, so there's this subjective element to opioid withdrawal where if you believe it's going to be super bad, it is. Um, if you believe it's going to drive you to get more drugs, it will. And if you don't, if you're naive to those ideas... You just go through it like the flu. And it is literally like the flu. That's in several medical textbooks um, that the symptoms of opioid withdrawal are like the flu. Far more serious withdrawal would be alcohol withdrawal, where you can die from, you can go into seizures and die from alcohol withdrawal. Same thing with benzodiazepines and barbiturates. Um, but so it, you know, I think learning all of those ideas, indoctrination of that was one part. Another part was, you know, I thought, wow, well, now my parents think of me as a heroin addict and all of my family does. They're going to see me in this light. They're going to think that I'm doing all of these terrible things. They're never going to trust me again. I'm never going to live this down. You know, I'm going to have this scarlet letter, whatever you want to call it, on me forever and there's this defeatism that comes over you and you just start to identify as an addict as somebody who's going to deal with this for the rest of their lives and that's what they teach you in the rehab you're gonna have to struggle against this for the rest of your life one day at a time just resisting and you know you look at all that and you're like well shit if it's if that's what it's going to be painful resistance of doing what i really want to do for the rest of my life I might as well just do it, you know? And so I got worse from there, very bad, and went through about five years of methadone treatments, arrests, being on the streets for a while, um, going for inpatient treatment, uh, psychiatry, all, you know, hospital detoxes, all, all the sort of things, built up a pretty lengthy criminal record, to a little time in jail, and... I ended up at this place called the St. Jude Retreats uh, that my parents found. I said, you got to find something that's truly different. And they did. You know, they said, it's not 12-step. We don't think it's a disease. You know, we think that you can choose to change. And I was like, wow, I want to go there. And I did. And the message resonated with me. And that, those people are who I wrote the Freedom Model for Addictions with. Um, and we renamed our retreats recently, the freedom model retreats. Um, and I ended up, you know, so obviously I ended up working with them at some point and, um, and that's how I got into all of this. 
And that was, oh, by the way, 2002. Yeah. Was, so it's been 16 years since I've been over that problem. <laughs> um, long time ago now. Hey guys, let's take a quick moment to hear from our sponsor for today's show. Of course, today's show is sponsored by RDAP Dan, Prison Consultants. And as I've documented many times on this show, sometimes, in fact, often, most of the time, even good people go to prison. And facing a federal case is an extremely stressful time. If you're facing this reality, then you need to contact Dan Wise, also known as RDAP Dan. RDAP Dan on YouTube. He has a great YouTube channel. Check that out. Dan and his team of prison consultants, I promise you, they will reduce your stress levels immediately upon speaking with them. You can call Dan and his team at any time. He will give you and your loved ones open access to support and answers. Now, Dan and his team will assist you with the following aspects of the process. Narrative letters to the judge, character reference letters, RDAP qualifications, prison designation, online reputation management, mindset coaching, and additional halfway house time. Don't sleep on this one, guys. You can find out more and schedule a free consultation with Dan and his team by visiting lionsofliberty.com slash RDAP. That's lionsofliberty.com slash R-D-A-P. And also on that page, I will have links and one of Dan's YouTube videos on that page. You can check it out. Dan has an outstanding YouTube channel with tons of information on the prison system. So I really encourage you to check that out. You talk about in the book, the freedom model belief is that addiction does not exist, that addiction is really a uh, something that has been created um, from the uh, the current really uh, addiction or recovery uh, ideology that is that is followed in medical practice and in uh, drug rehabilitation throughout the world. So is is that is that accurate? Yeah, you know, I look at it sort of like a social construct. Um, it's a way of that, that we've developed to explain um, what I guess can sometimes be ugly behavior. Um, and, you know, part of that is there's a special aura around drugs because they do something to us pharmacologically, right? But if, you know, if we weren't, looking at the pharmacological side of this, uh, we looked at people falling in love and feeling desperately in need of a person. Um, you know, we would say that they're infatuated, they're in love. They really think that they need that person for whatever reasons, for a whole bunch of personal reasons. You know, they think it's that person is the only one for them. They wouldn't be happy with anybody else. Um, we would just think that people really like doing something, but you know, there's drugs do noticeable things to you pharmacologically, you know, alcohol, you drink some and you start to lose your equilibrium. Um, so, you know, it's easy for people to start thinking, well, that has a special chemical hold on me, you know, and that idea started to spring up, late 1700s and then the 1800s um it got mixed up with a bunch of um religious crusading that we had here in the united states with the temperance movement they you know before that uh people drank alcohol whenever they wanted and in much larger amounts than we do today 
Um, there's always been some people that drank it too much and got into problems, but most people drank a lot and did so uneventfully and didn't really have problems with it. But when this temperance movement came along, um, they started to compare uh, a heavy drinking habit to slavery. They said it was self-enslavement. And they use this kind of rhetoric to cash in on, um, on racism at the time and, and to convince white drinkers that they were making themselves as low as black slaves. And they use that, you know, because they had a moral and religious thing against heavy drinking. And um, they used that to try to sway people to not do it. And then you see it, you see that rhetoric pop up in all the literature throughout the 1800s. And, um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of other developments along the way. But when it really takes off is when Bill Wilson makes AA and says addiction is like a disease and has the doctor uh, Silkworth at the beginning of the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous say, you know, I think that alcoholics have an allergy that makes them lose control once they start drinking. And, uh, and then you have the treatment industry spring up around that and you, you have them set up, uh, the national council on alcoholism uh, through Marty Mann, an AA member, and their sole mission is to get the world to believe that alcoholism is a disease. Um, and it's it's kind of fighting against the idea that it's a moral thing. But anybody who goes to AA will tell you, well, AA is really moralistic. You know, <laughs> they see drinking mm-hmm. as a sin. Um, but But yeah, and so if we didn't have this lore, though, um, if we didn't, it, it, then, you know, people would not feel so addicted. You learn to feel addicted by the concept of addiction. Otherwise you'd feel like I just really love this thing, you know, and that's different than feeling like I am physically enslaved by a substance and I cannot stop doing it. It happens without my will, you know? Right. So, I mean, the part I have trouble with, I'm certainly not, um, not debating the fact, I'm not challenging the fact that you were able to be helped this way, or many people are able to be helped this way. But you know, as a libertarian, I understand that uh, people are, are different. Everyone is uh, you know, affected differently to a certain degree by drugs or alcohol, or uh, you know, they might have certain things genetically in them uh, that could make them more, uh, more susceptible to, to becoming uh, dependent on a, on a substance, or maybe not even dependent is the right word, maybe just that uh, it, it, it uh, triggers them more. It's a different interaction in their brain where uh, maybe they enjoy a, uh, a different, a certain substance more. Um, do you believe that there is any sort of genetic um, things in the, I don't know the right word for that, any sort of genetic uh, triggers that, that could make a person more likely uh, to become, I wouldn't even use the word addiction, but to become <laughs> re- reliant on a, on a substance? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really buy the genetic theory. Um, And I'll say this. uh, First of all, and you probably noticed where I said it in the book, um, over 90% of people are going to get over their drug and alcohol use problems. And they're going to do it at a pretty predictable rate that comes up in epidemiological studies about every 10 years. Um, 
And, you know, you see that over 90% of people with alcohol problems get over it. Over 96% of people with prescription opioid use problems will eventually get over it. Uh, Over 97% of people with marijuana problems will get over it. Over 98% of people with prescription sedatives and tranquilizer problems will get over it. 99% of people with prescription stimulant programs, uh, problems, excuse me, will get over it. And over 99% of cocaine addicts are going to get over it. And, you know, and you look at most of those drugs, people get over it in four, five, six years. Cocaine, the, the, the median a uh, number of years, and it comes up again and again, is, is people have a cocaine problem for about six years. And, you know, the, the prescription opioids is five years. Um, I think marijuana is a little longer at nine years. I forget. Don't <laughs> don't quote me on that, I say, as I say this on a podcast. But um, You mean to, to get over marijuana? What does that even most mean? Most people will have <laughs> a marijuana problem that you could diagnose, you know, diagnosable. It fits all of the criteria for a substance use disorder. In other words, that you, you know, sometimes skip out on work in order to just be high for the day and you get in arguments with your family about it. Um, You've gotten a tolerance possibly to it, different things, but they'll fit the diagnosis and they'll fit the diagnosis for about nine years. People who really have a problem with it. Um, And you know, this fits with growing up and growing out of it, what people call the maturing out theory, you know, um, because the problems usually start when people are young. You know, you look at, you have about 20% of 22-year-olds consistently fit the diagnosis for uh, alcohol use disorder. And then if you look at 30-year-olds, about 6 or 7% fit the diagnosis. So you have this rapid drop off over the years. Um, and I, I'm, but that, and that's pretty predictable. People quit, they, they quit on their own, even though, you know, only a, a small portion get treatment. Um, but your question was about genetics and I raised this, this, the, the, the high rates of people getting over their problems to say, well, even if it was genetic, you have over 90, 96% of people getting over these problems. It's not a real strong gene there, is it? Or, or if the gene is turned on, I guess it, it turns off after a few years, if, if that's the case. Um, and the other thing I'll say about, and so what I'm trying to say is, it, it, even if it is genetic, it's not much of an obstacle, okay? Um, the other part I'm going to say is that when I've looked for, looked into these genetic claims, the most serious thing that I've, I've seen, um, and it was in one of William Miller's book, and he's a, he's a pretty respected alcohol researcher. They said that about 50% of alcoholism is genetic. And then when they explain why, I said, well, some people um, have a genetic condition where they don't process alcohol as well as others, right? When you when you drink alcohol, 
you have two enzymes that break it down. And the first enzyme actually turns it into a poison, uh, I think acetone. And then the second one metabolizes that to, to send it out of your body, right? And so people are lacking the second one some people, or, or they just don't make enough of it. And actually that's in a lot of, a lot of people, Asian people have this, uh, these sort of genes where, uh, they even call it the Asian flush where your, your face turns red. Um, because yeah. yeah. And in the, it's it's interesting, uh, sorry to interrupt, but it's interesting, interesting to say that about alcohol, because I do have two friends who, and I wouldn't consider them alcoholics, um, but they've decided to quit drinking alcohol because, and it might have something to do with what you were just talking about, not being able to process it. They'll drink the same amount as me, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, and would just be completely you know, out of control, making terrible decisions. And eventually, they just realized, why am I doing this? Um, so, I mean, they, yeah. they just stopped, so just stopped drinking. So that's affecting them differently. Right. And, and really it's just affecting them more, right. Because it's not being broken down. And, but that doesn't mean it compels them to use. And in fact, with the guys that you brought up, right, they decided it's an unpleasant experience and, and I'll probably stop this. And that's why you see, that's part of why you see less Asian people. And it's not just Asian people that that have this and it's not all Asian people, but that's why you see less of them have alcohol problems. There's also cultural factors that come into play uh, with with Asian cultures, but um, but so the gene in this case is making you less likely to have an alcohol problem, as opposed to more likely. You know, the norm is that most of us can process alcohol pretty good. So essentially, what they were saying is that the genetic thing makes you less likely. Uh, by saying that just because you can't handle it. Um, and so it's a different sort of a thing. So it is a true statement that to, maybe to say 50% of alcoholism is genetic, but not in the way that we think and that there's a single alcoholism gene, uh, that, that makes you want and crave alcohol and lose control over your use of it. Um, incidentally, um, have you ever heard of the drug antabuse or disulfiram? Sounds familiar, but I'm not sure if I have. What is it? That's one that's been around for a long time. Antibuse is the brand name. Um, and they give that to people to stop them from drinking. And what it does is it uh, suppresses the, the production of that second enzyme. So if you drink, you're going to get violently ill. You're going to throw up and go through, you know, you're going to... Get get a temperature, throw up, get all red. It's going to be unpleasant, and so they get try to get people to take those pills every day, so they live daily with the fear of I better not drink, (laughs) or else. And and um, some people drink beyond that limit. They they drink through the sickness until they can feel the drunk, or and some and but more often, what a lot of people will do if they're taking antabuse and they want to drink is they'll just stop taking it for a few days and wait for it to get out of their system. And they'll drink again. Right. So you talk about in the book, and maybe you can talk about this and sort of frame it in your own recovery, um, this uh, um, really the model, the freedom model for um, stopping drug abuse or you know cutting back or, or, or whatever you need to do. 
and replacing that outlet, replacing that, you know, when you're talking about your story, replacing um, the heroin you were using because the heroin made you feel happy, um, replacing that with some other sort of fulfillment or, or happiness. So how, how does that work? And are there what sort of activities or other things are prescribed or encouraged to be pursued? Well, um, I want to say it this way. I didn't ultimately need to replace heroin with anything. I got to a point and, you know, where it was certainly causing a lot of problems. And I was told to investigate if I could be happier without it. And really, mostly what that uh, consisted of in my first year uh, after successfully quitting it was uh, just living, doing my laundry, doing the dishes. Um, I did some volunteer work. Uh, not that I needed that to, um, to stay sober. Um, I had some health issues I had to deal with and just really living my life and, and, and just really reaching a point in my mind where I was like, you know, I've kind of had my fill of heroin, you know, it, it, it was fun. Um, but I really also, I'm enjoying myself just living life without it, you know, and sort of being open to the idea that you could be like, in some cases, changing nothing about your life, but just approaching it with a different attitude, you know, um, it's, it's really about looking at the options, what, you know, and so I, I say all this for a reason, like, um, If you think you have to replace heroin or something, you know, with some spectacular thing, that's building heroin up to be really spectacular. And it's not. It's a cheap thrill. And I don't think it's bad or immoral to use heroin, but I think I did it a whole bunch and it loses its luster. And um, and so what we're advising people to do is, hey, look at using a lot. Look at using a little and look at quitting altogether and think about what the genuine benefits of those different options might be and make your decisions and focus on benefits, you know, not, not the negatives. Oh, I could get arrested. This or that could happen, etc. cetera. Uh, because, you know, people with serious drug problems have been <laughs> experiencing those consequences for years and the consequences haven't made them stop. And they're fully what's, aware, you know? Like, what's the reason for the focus on the, the benefits versus the negative things? Yeah, because they already know the negatives. And um, a person would, let's say this, uh, a person would jump in front of a bus to push their kid out of the way, right? A lot of people do have done mm -hmm. things like that. They would do that knowing that they're going to die. Why? Because... The, the kid is pretty damn important to them. And they think, I couldn't live with myself if I let my child die. Um, what I'm trying to say with that is people will pay any price for something that they believe they need for happiness. And um, as long as a heroin user thinks this is the only thing that will make me feel good. You hear all these romanticized things about heroin. Oh, it's like being wrapped in a warm blanket. It's like kissing the creator, touching God. I mean, you hear all these stupid romanticized things about it. I mean, it's kind of sedation. And if you shoot it up, it gives you a little 
head rush of a high, but. Wait, so well, why you know, is that? Because I mean, I have. I mean, my uncle was a heroin addict. Or you abused heroin, um, mm-hmm. and when he was older and, and wasn't using it anymore, um, I wasn't allowed to see him when I was a kid. But you know, once I was growing up, I was, you know, I could interact with him, and he told me um, pretty much the same thing. Uh, don't he said, you know, never ever try heroin, never touch it, because it's it's the greatest thing in the world, and when, once you once you see that, once you feel that, it's it, it it'll ruin your life. So, what where does that come from? If it's not, if that's not reality, you know, it does feel good as a new experience often. But you know, incidentally, not everybody thinks that it feels good. They've done. There's been studies where they injected <laughs> high school kids. I think it was. And, uh, with morphine, and uh, most of them didn't like the experience, you know. Um, so it's not objectively an amazing feeling, but it, but it can subjectively be a good feeling. Um, but you know, you to get into why it's been romanticized, I think you you know you could go really deep into you know you could say it was De Quincey's book. Um, confessions of an opium eater. I mean, but there was a time where where people used plenty of opium and the drugs were known as pleasurable, but they were also just pretty much like, um, I'm sick, I'm not feeling well, and I need something to make me feel better. You know, they were, they were the world's medicine for thousands of years. Um, and people used it when they need it, needed to, and they stopped using when they didn't need to. I mean, in the 1800s, you could buy as much opium, heroin, or morphine whenever you wanted uh, without a prescription. And we had less people that were, you know, uh, having problems with those drugs at that time than we do today when it's really hard to get and there's all these levels of restriction. Um, for whatever reason, it has been romanticized throughout the ages. Um, I guess that's that I don't I don't know that I have an easy answer to that. But the flip side of it is that when it was decided that, that this is a thing that only doctors should have access to in like 1914, um, we started saying we had to scare people off of it. And part of this scare tactic is, you know, what your uncle told you. Don't don't, oh, don't even don't ever have that because you'll never forget it. It's the best feeling ever. Um I'm sure we get the same brain spikes from going on a roller coaster, and I'm not. I'm not trying to be flippant in saying that. You know, um, plenty of experiences that give you a jolt of of dopamine. Um, this stuff gets romanticized um, as like recording, like recording a podcast that gives you a jolt of dopamine. Right? <laughs> sure, sure, anything can. I get you know. Oh, you know, if I'm reading a new Thomas Sowell book, I get a big jolt of dopamine from that. Yeah. Um, no, but um, what I want to say is it's not the best thing in the world. And the rehabs reify that, though. And they're just kind of like, yeah, we know it's the best thing in the world. You never should have opened that box. You did. And now you're just going to have to suck it up and resist it for the rest of your life. <laughs> and you're never going to forget it. And I see what's his name, the comedian the tall skinny British comedian talk like that all the time. You know, he was 10 years sober and he's still craving heroin all the time because he romanticizes it. He thinks it takes away all of your problems. It doesn't, doesn't take away all your problems. And, a, um, a couple years ago, 
when I got, uh, it was about two years ago, I had to get a tonsillectomy. They put me on a dozen Percocets a day, which is basically like being on heroin. And um, I just felt sedated and I didn't like it. I wanted it to be over with, you know? And, and you know, I was in, on those drugs for about three weeks and I recognized the feeling as feeling like heroin, which I hadn't had in, in 14 years, I guess, at that point. And, and I just didn't like it. You know, it's, it, you can grow past this. You know, it's like a lot of people have drugs that they grew out of. You know, marijuana is a common one. People get to a point where they're like, oh, I just feel incapacitated when I do it. Yeah, and you get mm-hmm. bored of it and you move on. There's so many things in life. We need to get to a place where we're allowed to see heroin and the other drugs like this. They're okay. They feel kind of good. And sometimes they don't, you know? And sometimes you get past it because they're boring. And and that's what I'm really trying to impart in the freedom model is, is um, that you can change your perspective on drugs over time and think, you know, maybe just um, not using them would, would feel good. Maybe using something a little less dangerous could feel just as good. I have a friend who overdosed and was revived like a dozen or more times on, um, on, from heroin back in the day. And he moved to smoking pot. He had been trying to abstain, abstain, abstain. And then eventually he's just like, he quit. And he's like, you know, I'm just going to smoke pot. And he liked that. And he enjoyed that. That was enough of a high for him and, and is got past it. Uh, this is now 15 years later. He's a beautiful man with a beautiful wife, looks totally healthy. I, I, I'm shocked. I can't believe it. And, uh, but that's what he did. Um, and it, so there's plenty of ways to get beyond this. But we come at people with this, you are addicted and you have this disease for life and you can never touch anything again. And you're going to have to fight and struggle and be in meetings and get aftercare and just fight, fight, fight for the rest of your life. It's crushing. It deters people from changing. Um, And we need to allow them and we need to give them the right information to explore that maybe you could be happier making a change. And believe it or not, that is not what happens in rehabs and in treatment. It's all scare tactics. AA's idea about losing control, they say if you have a single drink, you'll lose control. That's a scare tactic. And it's it's been tested. You know, you might have heard me talk about it on Tom Woods. I, I gave one example. There's plenty of examples where it's been tested and people are in full control. They can make decisions. Uh, they can make decisions about uh, delayed rewards and everything uh, when they take um, alcohol, cocaine, meth, crack, you name it. These things have been tested and people can have a hit. People that are self-described addicts that fit the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. they can have a hit and then choose to have no more. Um, They really do not lose control. Um, But that's a little fable that makes people feel good. Setting setting the expectation that you're going to lose control I would think makes it easier to lose control because you would feel sort of justified in in losing control after you do have that one drink. Well, oh shit, I've already lost control. I might well, might as well have fifteen. Um, I don't know if, if that yeah. factors into it too. Oh well, it absolutely does too. Because consider this: um, 
your family has decided you're an addict and uh, they've been told not to tolerate any substance use. If you have a single drink, that's a relapse, right? And so you want to have a drink. You want to smoke a joint. And you know that when you get caught, you're going to be kicked out of home or sent back to a rehab or whatever. Well, what makes more sense to have a single joint or to shoot up heroin all day, every day for a week straight? If the costs are going to be the same. So what we do is we flatten the costs for people when there's zero tolerance policies. Um, and so people say, screw it. Yeah, I'm going to go on a week long binge uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's going to cost you the same either way. Well, I'll tell you what, Stephen. This this does make a lot of sense, and it's making me making me think, making me reexamine um, addiction, drug use, um, really, really everything around it. So I want to thank you for coming on. And actually, you know what? Down the line, I might like to have you back on again. I've been thinking about having sort of an uh, an addiction roundtable, bringing on uh, one or two other experts to to talk through some of these issues and not argue or debate, but really just. Um, put the ideas out there. So maybe down the line, we'll do that. Uh, that'd be very interesting. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. And if you could let my listeners know where they can get um, your book and your website and anything else that you're working on. My personal website is thecleanslate.org. That's where I, I blog about addiction. Um, and then the website for the book is thefreedommodel.org. And uh, there's information about other services that the company I work for offers there. And, you know, of course, you can get it on Amazon and all of that as well. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me, John. Well, guys, that is a wrap for the interview today. I hope you guys enjoyed my interview with Stephen Slate. I I didn't lie in the intro. I said it was going to be unconventional. Might piss some people off, and I'm sure it probably did. I do want to add... If you uh, have suffered from addiction and if you've found help and you're in recovery, long-term recovery, and you've done it following the the AA method or a similar method, then please continue. Please don't change a thing. But I think think Stephen brought up some fantastic points, a lot to think about, and I'm sure there's a – I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all treatment for addiction – Every individual is is different, and people are going to react differently to different situations, uh, psychologically, emotionally, physically. So, why are we treating? You know, why do we treat all addicts the exact same way? Um, there should be different different ways to recovery, different paths to recovery. You know, I won't talk about it anymore. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, tell me what you think. Sound off on today's episode in the forum. You can join the Lions of Liberty Forum by going on Facebook. Type Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top. And if you're a real person, we will get you in the forum. And I can't let this episode end without talking about something huge that has not happened yet, but is rumored to be happening this upcoming Monday. Um, It was reported on Thursday night, so listening to this on Friday, last night, that Donald Trump... Has, he's working on his opioid epidemic legislation where he's going to save the world with uh, government legislation. And the one thing that jumped out from the legislation is that he is talking about the death penalty, capital punishment for drug dealers, which is freaking insane. And as soon as I heard it, the first thing, I got really upset and mad, pissed off. Um, 
then I thought, wait a minute, this is Donald Trump. This is a guy who said he was going to build a wall. Um, and he's really not built a wall and he's not going to build a wall. And don't get me wrong. I don't think Donald Trump is going to end the war on drugs. I don't think he's saying he's going to kill drug dealers and then he's going to do a backdoor and somehow end the war on drugs tomorrow. I don't think that's his intention. I don't know what his intentions are. His intentions are to further his brand, probably get elected again and be seen in a good light. So somehow he thinks that's going to work. So he has some motivation here. That was his, that's his offering, his, his opening uh, opening bid. I think there's no way in hell that gets passed into law, so he's not going to have a chance to sign that into law. So I'm not too concerned, I'm not too concerned about it. Um, you know, I'm concerned that I've seen some support for it, and I've heard people say the same thing. Um, that just shows that they don't understand the reason why uh, there's been so much damage caused by the war on drugs. You know, people say the war on drugs hasn't worked, and that's the understatement of the year. The war on drugs has been a catastrophe. It has been a uh, horrible event in the history of this country. It has destroyed lives. It's ruined lives. It's not that it just hasn't worked. I mean, it definitely has not eradicated drugs from society. We're sure of that. But on top of that, it has been a cancer in society. It's awful. And it is the reason why we have an addiction problem. So, you know, we've talked about... Uh, Ending the War on Drugs a lot in this show. There's a lot of episodes you can go back and search the archives. You'll find uh, a lot of good stuff, a lot of good shows that we've done, that I've done on Felony Friday and on other shows. Mark's done some good shows too, talking about the War on Drugs. Go back, check those out. And just one more thing, guys, you know what it is. If you want this show to grow and you're listening to it, you like it. If you want us to expand and Travel the countryside, talking about liberty, going to libertarian events. If you want that, if you want us to reach a wider audience, grow this show, then please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can join. We have a bunch of different levels. You can join all the way from five up to 100, actually. Um, the most popular levels are probably our $15 level. That is our um, newest level. We just added it. And at that level, you'll get a a free t-shirt, you'll get a, a koozie, um, you'll get access to our private Facebook group, and you get a daily, Monday through Friday, Newslink email curated by our intelligence officer, Howie Snowden. He pulls tons of Newslinks and uh, puts that together. I help him sort stuff out a little bit, but you're going to get stuff from a bunch of different categories, politics, mainstream media, criminal justice, cryptocurrency, uh, culture, all that good stuff. So check it out. Join the pride. You go to lionsofliberty.com slash support. Of course, if you want to join at the $25 level, that is also another popular level where you get a conference call, a monthly conference call where you can just talk with us, shoot the shit, hang out. We can talk about whatever you want to. And uh, we do that once a month with our $25 pride members. And they also get all the bonus content and, and all that stuff. They get the, the news link emails, the free gear, all that good stuff. So, and the bonus content, the bonus content. I mean, that's why most people join the Pride, I think. We have our recurring shows, Degenerate Gamblers, which of course is myself and Brian McWilliams and Rico talking about gambling and also talking about just random stuff, telling stories from the past. It's a lot of fun. And of course, Conspiracy Corner. So that is... uh 
That's also a lot of fun. And unfortunately, I haven't been on too many of those. My schedule is just conflicted with uh, recording those. But Rico's always on, Conspiracy Corner. And Mark, most of the time. Howie, most of the time. Brian will be on from time to time. JB, we'll bring him in for Conspiracy Corner. Great topics. They've talked about Antarctica. They've talked about Waco and everything in between. So if you want that extra bonus content, you got to join the Pride. And you can join for as little as $5 per month to get that bonus content. Go to lionsliberty.com slash support and join today. And that is it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burn. Burn.